podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. At Stumps on day three of Sri Lanka's first ever test match, they had a very big chance of winning. On day one, it didn't look like that when they lost their first four wickets with 34 runs on the board, but they fought their way back through to 200, in part thanks to a young 18-year-old called Ajuna Ronatunga. But their opposition ended up with a five-run lead, and by stumps on day three, they were only three down with a 147-run lead and what was clearly, at that point, a very low-scoring match. Their opposition was England, who had a team meeting. A week before this, Sri Lanka had played an ODI against them, and after making 215, England were 202 for five, with Keith Fletcher and Mike Gadding at the crease the present and future captain. And somehow England ended up with four runouts and also four runs short of the total. That was England's first loss against Sri Lanka. But losing a random ODI is one thing. A test, the first one, that's something else. So with this in mind, England went very hard at Sri Lanka on day four and they took seven for 34 in the morning. And then when England went out to bat, they strolled to victory with only three wickets down. The Sri Lankans were disappointed, but just happy to be playing tests, or at least one test. And what was clear from this match, and it stayed true pretty much all the way through, is that Sri Lanka played the game their way. Welcome to Double Century. This season is on when teams beat England for their first major victory. This episode is Sri Lanka, who entered cricket after being obsessed with the sport for generations. But despite a little bit of success, like, say, winning a World Cup, England still treated them like a small nation, until something happened at the Oval. My father-in-law immigrated from Sri Lanka to England in the late 1960s, and a few years ago we found one of the suitcases that he'd actually brought over with him, and they were lined with local newspapers. The sheer number of cricket stories on the back page is extraordinary. I don't think you would ever see it almost anywhere else. Ticketing stories, reports from internationals around the world, update on Wes Hall in Shield cricket, and even stories from club cricket games where someone had broken a leg. And it wasn't just in newspapers. My mother-in-law has often told me stories about when she was young, standing at the railway station and hearing the first-class cricket scores be read out. And cricket runs very deep in Sri Lanka. English and Australian teams often halted in Ceylon en route to each other's countries. They played cricket there. Even Ivo Bly's team of 1882-83, the first ever Ashes tour, played two matches in Ceylon. Tom Bradman never set foot in Pakistan or India, but he did play at the Pisara Oval in Colombo. And they produced great early cricketers as well. Gamini Gunasena played until 1964, so he never got to play Test cricket, but he did brilliantly for Nottinghamshire and New South Wales. Maha Devan Sivam captained Ceylon, Singapore and Malaysia. Sobers once called him the greatest batsman on earth, while Frank Worrell, the greatest batsman he had seen. There was a lot of talent in Sri Lanka, but no real scope to make it any better. Because they were such a small nation, there was never a push for them to join international cricket. But they kept improving, and eventually they would play in the original Men's World Cup of 1975. But it was the following tournament when they scored 238 runs and dismissed India for 191. It was that win that really moved them into Test cricket. But they had had some success before then. In the 75 World Cup against Australia, the Aussies made them chase 329. Sri Lanka were 150 for two after 32 overs before Jeff Thompson kept injuring Sri Lankan batters, but they still made it to 276, which until 1982 remained the highest score by any side batting second. And it was just clear that Sri Lanka were more ready for tests than many previous teams had been. 
They had beaten full-strength MCC teams, and by MCC teams, I really mean England teams, in 1969 and 1973 in limited overs games. And obviously, it wasn't just in limited overs, as they should have beaten England in that first test. And they did beat India in their eighth test series. And 10 years after their first test, they won back-to-back test series at home against New Zealand and a one-off test against England. Even in a Lord's test in 1984 against England, Sri Lanka had gotten the lead of 121 runs after the first innings. Dilip Mendes made 111 and 94. But England managed to draw that match. They would also tour Pakistan and New Zealand and won series there. But even though they had defeated England in 1993, a really good victory too, where England made 380 in the first innings and still lost by five wickets, you would think that England would have respected them more. And of course... Sri Lanka won the 1996 World Cup as well. And not in a normal method. They basically invented a new way of playing limited overs cricket to be able to win that. And along the way, they beat England in the quarterfinals as well. And yet still in 1998, 15 years after Sri Lanka first beat them in an ODI, five years after losing a test against them. In fact, in the last six games, Sri Lanka had won five of their internationals going into 1998. And yet with all that, England only gave Sri Lanka a single test. In comparison, England had just beaten South Africa at home in the same summer in a five-test series. There's probably never been a team who had consistently proved themselves as much as Sri Lanka had that still hadn't actually won over England enough to play them regularly. And so after playing South Africa, Sri Lanka were allowed a single test against England. It was a weakened team through injury. Captain Mike Atherton was out of the side. Nasser Sane and Andrew Flintoff both missed as well. But that didn't seem to matter on what was a slowish oval pitch as England handled the Sri Lankan bowling attack fairly well. Their first innings took 158 overs, with Graham Hick and John Crawley making hundreds. The Sri Lankan attack had the outswing of Pramodja Wickramasinghe. Suresh Pereira was their second seamer, and current ICC umpire Kumar Damasena bowled kind of fastest off-spin. Wickramasinghe took two wickets, Pereira won, and while England batted for a long time, they were slow, and it took them almost two days to score 445 runs. But the real reason they struggled to get away was largely because of one bowler, Mutaya Murali Duran, or I suppose as we generally call him, Murali, who was the son of a biscuit manufacturing candy. He was a Sri Lankan Tamil in a time where there was a civil war in his country between the government and the Tamil Tigers. He was a leg spinner with an arm deformity that didn't allow him to straighten his arm completely. Eventually he would switch to off spin, but in truth he kind of invented his own third kind of spin, a wrist spin that turned in like off spin. And instead of bowling with the wrist facing the batters, the ball came out of the back of the hand. He basically inverted finger spin bowling and bastardized wrist spin bowling. And Sri Lanka has had so many bowlers like this. Murali was just one, but Lassif Malinga, Ajanta Mendes, Kamindu Mendes, Akila Dananjaya. It's a system that just keeps producing incredible unorthodoxy. And that unorthodoxy by 1998 meant that Murali had taken 187 test wickets. He was already over 100 better than the next best bowler for Sri Lanka. His average at this point was 28. So he was good, but he was far from the great that he would obviously become. But there was also clearly a massive conspiracy about him. Because of this inverted backwards-facing action that came out of his deformed arm, it made it look to fans and people in cricket around the world like he was throwing the ball. It was very hard to find international cricketers at that point who did not believe that Murali was throwing. Put it simply, the game was not ready for an inverted bowling action like that. Chucking never really went away with cricket. It had been around for a lot of times and had a lot of big flare-ups. 
Australian Indigenous bowlers were quite often called for chucking, even if a lot of people did not believe that that was correct. West Indians had Charlie Griffith, who was accused, and Sonny Ramadan, who wore long sleeves when he bowled, and he later admitted that was to stop people from seeing the bend in his elbow. Ian Metcalf might have been the last man out in the first tied test, but his book would be called Thrown Out after he was called for chucking and then slowly just pushed from the game. In the 1950s and 60s, so many bowlers were accused. But I want to tell you about a different cricketer who's not very well known today. Troy Corbett was playing at the same time as Murley. He was playing for Victoria at the birth of what you would call Australian professional sport. He wore shorts when playing limited overs for Victoria as the Victorians thought that would bring in more crowds. That's a true thing that happened. In eight limited overs games for Victoria, Corbett gave up 197 runs and took 18 wickets at an average of 10.94. He took a wicket every 23.5 balls. And then Corbett never played again. Never. Not once. And why? Because he was suspected of chucking. That's all it took. Corbett was never tested and never even called for a no ball. He and his shorts just disappeared from the game. That was how it was done. There were no trials. Hundreds, if not thousands of bowlers who were great at taking wickets were suddenly accused of throwing the ball and they were ignored and they never played again. Being called a chuck is so harshly thought of in cricket that it's considered libelous in some cricket markets. But I want to be very clear here. Chucking is just a no ball. It's not the worst thing in cricket. Almost all pro bowlers have chucked the ball at least once, probably barring traditional wrist spinners who find it very hard to straighten their arm. It often just comes from a lack of rhythm or someone trying a bit too hard, and in some cases, bowling actions just degrade through overwork and many injuries. Most bowlers don't chuck on purpose. Most bowlers think their actions are legit. Famously, England legend Tony Locke of Locke and Laker was told he was chucking the ball, but he wasn't concerned by the talk about that until one day he saw footage of himself and realized he actually was. And he went off and remodeled his action and discarded his quicker one. And the thing is that so many cricketers never even got a chance to do that. And if we condemn everything that is new and outlaw it from the game, then I don't think we know what we are missing. When the first round arm bowlers came on the scene, they were called for chucking. If we outlawed them, we just wouldn't have a game today. But I truly believe that people like Troy Corbett deserve a chance. They deserve rehabilitation and a fair trial. Troy Corbett lost a career without even a hearing. He's now a police officer in South Australia. Had he come a little bit later, things might have been completely different. And that's because of Murali. When Sri Lanka played in a test at the MCG in 1995, Daryl Hare stuck out his right arm and called Murali for chucking. I was there. I tell you, Bill, having looked at that, there is absolutely no doubt that he's called him for uh, throwing. So he's called that one. So uh, he didn't call the first one, and he's called the second one. So umpire Hare, obviously, is picking something. This is the last delivery. So umpire Hare says that is a no ball. So what he's saying is that he bent, he had his arm bent, and he straightened it. And from that moment onwards, I remember the awkwardness in much of the crowd and the rowdiness from Bay 13 as they started screaming no ball every time he delivered. He would obviously be called later in the summer as well. For many bowlers, that would have been it. Captains usually turned on bowlers who were called for chucking. But Sri Lanka and their captain, Arjuna Ranatunga, knew this was their most important bowler, probably important player. And so they fought for Murali. So they went and got scientists. And not just any scientists, they specifically went and targeted white scientists to look at Murali's action so that people would listen to the science more. The interesting things about you then, in your view, are the shoulder and the wrist. wrist. You're able to wrist, do amazing things with my, the wrist. Yeah, my, and you believe that this stays firm through the whole of the bowling action. Yeah, but 
All right. It's in Australia, proven. Right in uh, when I went in this uh, test, 2004, when I did it in Australia, it says it has a flexion of 14 degrees when I bowl first. Then after that, they suggest to me to do this to that. Then within two days, I just retested again, and it came 10 degrees of right. flex. Which of course still isn't quite within the ICC's new guideline about flex, which allows yeah. 10 degrees of flex for a fast bowler yeah. and 5 degrees of flex for a yeah. slow bowler. Yeah. This was brought in because upon investigation it was discovered yeah. that many bowlers were also applying some flex. There was definitely an ethnic and racial component to all of this. And through looking at Murali's action, we actually learnt a lot more about bowling. Like that most bowlers straighten their arm when delivering the ball. And we ended up settling on a 15 degree flex as the best case scenario so that all bowlers weren't suspended. But as you may be aware from modern life and what's been going on with COVID, not everyone listens to science, especially don't like science in their sport. Many fans, former players, even the Australian Prime Minister continued to accuse Murali of chucking even after he had been cleared. And in truth, he did bowl the Dusra, a ball that has been shown to be virtually impossible to bowl legally. And testing a bowler in the lab is nothing like testing them on day four of a test when they really need a wicket to win the match. That is really where we need to get to with cricket. We need bowlers to be actually tested in live environments out in the middle. But we're not there yet. But Murali moved us towards that. I would say, even if you've listened to all this and you think he definitely chucked, I would say that he completely changed cricket for the better because he took it away from innuendo and rumour and made it about science and not just some square leg umpire who's taking a guess. But it should be pointed out that in 1998, this was generally not a common way of thinking about Murali. If he took wickets against your team, or in Australia's case, he didn't even take that many wickets, generally people decided he was a chucker. And it was also at this point in 1998 when he went from taking a few wickets to taking all the wickets. If you compare him to the other great spinner of his era, Shane Warne, Warne was someone who seemed to pick up his wickets one at a time, thinking, planning, scheming, whereas Murali seemed to toss out a net and pick them all up in one go. That's not to say that Murali's wickets all came at once, but this is the period where that all started. And he was clearly central to every part of Sri Lanka's planning, including why they bowled first on a batting wicket at the Oval. That is because they knew how many overs he would have to deliver and they needed him to rest between innings. And so imposing the follow-on would work for that. It should also tell you just how confident Sri Lanka was at a team. They were thinking about enforcing the follow-on even before the game had started. And yet England was still only giving them one test. There was a real disconnect between how Sri Lanka thought about themselves and how England thought about Sri Lanka. And in that first inning, Sri Lanka were right. Murali bowled nearly 60 overs. This would become a pattern. Murali would bowl 50-plus overs 31 times in his career. No other bowler in history has done it more than 20 times. Lance Gibbs and Dan Vittoria next with 19 each. And during that spell, Darren Goff said he never even looked tired. Oh, and along the way, he took seven wickets, which is just an extraordinary effort for a spinner in the first innings in England. But as great as it was, England still had 445 runs. And England were very confident. Darren Goff has said repeatedly since that England thought they had won the game already. And at stumps on day two, Sri Lanka had moved to 79 for one. But on day three, they only lost two more wickets. Sanis Jayasuriya did something quite extraordinary. He was a number seven who bowled fingerspin earlier in his career. But in 1996, they moved into the top of their ODI team. And he and Ramesh Kalu Uthara changed ODI cricket forever just by hitting out at the top of the order. 
Kaluith Arana would be more of a pinch hitter in today's cricket, and he sort of fizzled out. But Jay Saria just kept going on to hit the ball everywhere, slashing wide balls, near fearlessness to losing his wicket, and scoring at an incredible rate. But this was test cricket, and he was never as good in the test game, even if his best score was an astonishing 340. But Jay Saria had his moments. And this day at the Oval was clearly one of them. He made 213 from 278 deliveries. Just an extraordinary attacking knock. Oh, and that's a cracking shot to get off the mark. Very strong wrists, Jaya Surya. Just lent into that one. Well, timing outside the off stump is Jaya Surya's strength. It's a cracking stroke. What a beauty! There it is. 200 for Sanaz Jaisaria. Very appropriate that it comes on the offside where he scored most of his runs. The England bowlers were exhausted from their tests against South Africa and he destroyed what was left of them. And when he hit Angus Fraser for six over point, the England bowlers just kind of collapsed. And at the other end was Aravinda de Silva who has already started to be forgotten as a test player because of batters like Mahela Jail Wardner and Kumar Sankikara. But let us be clear, Aravinda de Silva was an incredible player who conquered green tops in New Zealand and without his consistent runs, their ODI style would never have worked. In this innings, England got the ball to reverse and de Silva just moved across his stumps and tickled the ball fine repeatedly. He made 152 and along the way became the first Sri Lankan to pass 5,000 test runs. And because specifically Jay Saria scored so quick, it meant that Sri Lanka batted for less overs than England and yet took a 150-run lead. The whole innings was remarkable. It also made England stand up and take notice. I mean, this wasn't actually a series, was it? It was another single test. South Africa were taken so seriously that they had an entire five-test series. And then this England team clearly didn't want to play Sri Lanka or respect them all that much and just tacked on a game at the end. But with England having the bat at the end of day four, they lost two more wickets, and going into the final day, they were still 92 runs behind. Early on day three, they lost Steve James. But there was a lot of batting to come, and this was only Sri Lanka, which is the way that England were thinking about it. Some England players later admitted that they never even bothered looking at the Sri Lankan players beforehand. They just didn't do any research. They just rocked up to the test mat, whereas Sri Lanka had thought a lot about how to defeat England. But there was still a long way for Sri Lanka to go. The oval pitch was incredibly flat. There had only been 22 wickets over four days, including three hundreds and a double hundred. But facing Murali on the fifth day was something else. Mark Butcher remembers trying to play balls that he thought were half volleys outside leg stump that he could hear fizz down to him and end up with the keeper. Frustration, purely frustration, excellent bowling by Mura Litterin. And that's a lack of patience and discipline by Mark Butcher. Beautifully done by Sri Lanka, but uh, just ask the question, should he have shown a little bit more patience, stay at home, play from the crease, you don't want to lose early wickets. Murali is hard enough to play if you spent a lot of time thinking about him. England just rocked up in the middle and tried to face him. And now the pitch was in his favour. And captaining him was the man who had fought for him when he was first fought for chucking. The man who had fought against England in that first test, Arjuna Ranatunga. 
someone willing to take on the Australians, the ICC, who captained a World Cup victory and changed the way we think about chucking. But before all of that, Arjuna Ranatunga was just clearly a stunning cricket mind. As a young man, he was almost lost to Sri Lankan cricket when he was going to travel on a rebel tour to South Africa. Luckily for them, he didn't, and his combination with Murali was almost a perfect harmony between spin bowling weapon and Yoda-like guru. One thing that Arjuna loved in test matches well before they were popular was an in-and-out field, and the English batters were put off by this. And it was Arjuna who made the call to bowl first on a batting-friendly pitch. He was like this grand conductor who just played the game the way that he wanted. And Murali was basically all of his instruments. He was their bowling attack. And the only England player who looked like he could actually face him was Alex Stewart, who was run out. This could be close. And it's a direct hit. And umpire Eddie Nichols has called for the third umpire replay. Sri Lankan fielders certainly believe that it's out. They're very confident. It's a wonderful bit of fielding. Well, I'll say what I always say, that Alex Stewart looked in, but every time there's a direct hit, you usually find that you're in trouble. And that was the only wicket that Murali didn't take. In 54.2 overs, he took 9 for 65. His economy rate was 1.2. In the match, he took 16 wickets for 220 runs from well over 100 overs. He actually bowled 113.5 overs in the test, the most since January 1962, and he's still the only bowler since the 1950s to bowl over 54 overs in each innings. Hold him. A beauty. Spun between bat and pad. That now will be lunch, but uh, not a very pleasant one for John Crawley and for the England team because they're fired down now. Crawley bowled by Murlederen. Right on the stroke of lunch for 14. LBW. LBW, first ball after lunch. Ben Hollyoak has gone. Lots of shouts there and uh, with full justification as well. Because another wicket has gone down. Dominic Cork, perhaps the back of the bat. Caught by uh, Kelvet Arana of uh, Muralederen for eight. Well, it's turning into a bit of a procession. Yeah! Yeah! That's gone. That's inside edge onto the pad. Ramp Prakash goes. And uh, now it looks for all the world like a Sri Lankan victory. Ramp Prakash out for 42. Another good innings from him. Bowl him. Bowl him behind his pads. I suspect that might have been the leg break. Because uh, it was either that or the top spinner. And it was very well bowled if it was a leggy coming in from the rough outside the right hander's leg stump. Made an awful clatter. England did manage to get a small lead against Murali somehow, but it was only 36 runs. And Jay Saria went out there and smashed 24 from 17. I don't really think you're going to stop Sri Lanka from getting the target. Oh, oh, look at that. that. That's wonderful. Six runs. Well, this is a great shot. Jay Saria deciding that he's not going to muck around here. That's a fierce hit. 
You don't see too many square cuts for six. Not on a big ground like the oval. Both feet off the ground. By the most remarkable stroke. After which JSRE would say, I think they thought that giving us even one test was a waste of their time. When we played aggressively, I think there was a perception that we were batsmen who just thrashed and smashed the ball like crazy persons with no brain. But it wasn't like that for us. Sri Lankan batters were seen as sloggers. They're captain as a madman who would bowl first on a flat pitch, partly because they enjoyed chasing in ODIs. Most of their bowling attack was, well, ignored. And their main bowler was tainted because of his action. But Sri Lanka turned up, backed their batting, organised their game around one bowler, and they beat England in the only test they were allowed. It was cricket unlike how others played it. And there it is. The winning runs for Sri Lanka. And it is a splendid victory. Arjuna Ranatunga won the toss, put England in. They made over 400 and still Sri Lanka won. That is a really good win, a top-class victory. And that's the way it all finished. Sri Lanka winning by 10 wickets, their first ever victory in a test match in England. A wonderful effort. England 445 and 181 all out were beaten by Sri Lanka 591 and 37 for no wicket. And the Cornhill man of the match, Mataya Muralidharan, and a sensational performance from him, the fifth best figures in test match cricket in the history of the game. And England were caught unaware. They were so impressed that they ended up playing them in three tests shortly afterwards. Sri Lanka, though, they just did what they always did. They played cricket their way. Thanks for listening to Double Century. This podcast was made entirely possible by our supporters at Patreon. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to support us into the future. This show was written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. It was co-written by Max Wiggins, who also did the original research. Additional research and fact-checking was by Abhishek Mukherjee. And our producer is Nick McCorriston. Thank you so much for listening. But if you do like this show, one of the best ways that you can help support us is just simply by sharing it on social media or rating and reviewing it in your favorite podcast apps. If you like my work and want to follow it more, there is a link in the show notes to Linktree, which will show you where I do, I don't know, TikToks and Instagrams and YouTube and Twitter and other podcasts. Double Century is my podcast about the history of the game, but I have another podcast called Red Inca, which is on the current game. Come over and hear us talking about when Faf Duplessis is topless or why T20 cricket is broken. Red Inca can be found where you listen to your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.